Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study your word together. We thank you for the freedom that you've given us to do that. We recognize that the world is in a bad space right now, and we don't know how much longer we'll have the freedom to study your word openly and to proclaim the gospel. But, Lord, you know uh, when, when your time is coming, and uh, we just trust you and pray for many people who still need you. Yes. And we pray, Lord, that you would be with us today as we study your word your wonderful word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. Um, it's been quite a week. Sandy and myself were dealing with something, one or two things earlier this week, and someone who's now left us, left, gave up the ghost quoted another person who used to like us, but stopped liking us, and actually said, concerning myself particularly, but concerning Moriel, but concerning myself particularly, there are those who love the word of the Lord more than they love the word. No, they love the word of the Lord more than they love the Lord. That's what they said. They love the word of, of the Lord more than they love the Lord. That was their statement. Now, again, John 1.14, the word became flesh. Jesus is the word incarnate. The word is Jesus in print, as we always say. And we're told in the Psalms that God has magnified his word above his name. How can you love God more than you love his word if his word is God? It's logically and theologically impossible. But that is what these people were resorting to saying. Now, that is the same kind of stuff I heard from the Toronto people. Only these were people who were against Toronto and had that kind of argumentation directed against them. We definitely live in an age of apostasy. We live in an age of great falling away. There are people you never would have thought have gone off. But there will be people who the Lord will keep and will never go off. One of our main purposes is to plead with him that by his grace, we will be among them. Now, Psalm 91 is a messianic psalm because it's quoted in the New Testament, howbeit by the devil. But that makes it inevitable that we have to address this particular psalm. The complication in this psalm is that most of it applies to us more than to Jesus, yet it is messianic because of the way, because it occurs in the New Testament in reference to Jesus. Something I've talked about multiple times, most recently on a teaching called The Twelve Mountains of Jesus, uh, which is pretty news in the last week to 10 days or something, where we looked at the temptation of Jesus in a nutshell, in an abbreviated form. But I've talked about it before with Jesus as the last Adam, that he has to be tempted in the way that we are, and he had to overcome in the wilderness before he could go to the cross. Please remind me, I've talked about this subject several times. Have we gone into it at length yet in these Bible studies? Remind me, forgive my senility. I'm losing it, as you can tell. I thought it was Wednesday. Sandy, do you remember? Um, no, I don't remember you doing that. Okay, so we I know I've done it, but we haven't really done it in the context of these psalms too much. That's fine. Okay. I then I know what to say and what not to say. Look with me, please, to Psalm 91. May the Lord be with us. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, may God in whom I trust, my God in whom I trust. Now notice something. 
to be in the shelter of the Most High, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. The refuge and fortress at a time of attack, at a time of peril, at a time of impending crisis. The refuge, the fortress, the safe place is not a geographical location. It is a person, and that person is God. We have people, I know of people who've gone to Petra in Jordan. I've known of survivalist Christians in the United States going out to the Rocky Mountains or the Smoky Mountains. I know people who went to the Smoky Mountains in, in Carolina, not far from where Sandy is, and they got a cabin and an underground bunker with 100,000 rounds of ammunition. There's people looking for all kinds of things, and they're doing things like storing up food because you won't be able to buy it with the mark of the beast and things like that. They're doing all these things, and that becomes their focus. That becomes their shelter. It's the one they dig out in, in the mountain somewhere. They think that becomes their, their shelter. There's actually people, actually Christians, who've done this and who are doing it. There actually are. Now, I don't say not to use common sense in times of persecution. Jesus said, when they persecute you in this place, flee to the next. I, I don't question that, but the question is, where is the safe place? Where is the safe place? You know, people in big cities in the United States and apartments in inner cities like New York and Chicago, if they're people of some wealth, they will have apartments with a safe room. It'll be a vault with ex an external source of oxygen. They'll have food, they'll have water, they'll have a laboratory facility even, and they'll have emergency communication to be able to contact the police and private police from inside this vault in their house called a safe room. They actually have that. Their apartments built with safe rooms in the more salubrious neighborhoods of Manhattan and, and, and along Lakeshore Drive in Chicago and places like this and, and Beverly Hills and so forth. There are actually places built like this. A safe room, a safe room. Well, every Christian, no matter where they live, they may live in a council flat. They may live in a housing project. They may live in an ordinary neighborhood, in an ordinary suburb. They may live anywhere. We all have a safe room. We all have a fallout shelter. We all have a place of refuge. But it's not a closet. It's not a bunker. It's a relationship with a person. When I need a shelter, when I need a friend, I go to the rock. The Lord is our fortress. He is our refuge. It is he who delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. From the snare of the trapper. The enemy is out to get us. Now, the Hebrew term is for trap is markodet. Markodet. And you always have cheese in a rat trap, as I say. In other words, one of the, the way the Malkodet of the enemy works is this. He uses a true doctrine or things that look good, like good works. He will use things that seem to be biblical and positive and may even be scriptural. But that will be bait. That will be cheese in the rat trap. That's what it will be. How does this work? The devil always puts truth next to error, as we've said many times. Second Peter chapter 2. False teachers and false prophets, Patterson Zusen. They put truth next to error. The devil's trap is always the use of truth or the misuse of truth to get people to believe a lie, 
you package a lie in truth. It's like candy coating an arsenic tablet. You can cover an arsenic tablet with chocolate. You could make it Belgian chocolate or Swiss chocolate. You can make it look and taste delicious, but it's still lethal. Well, that's how it works. Again, I don't want to look at it too much, but Parasogzusin, if you don't know, very, very briefly, we've talked about it before, Second Peter chapter 2. Verse 1, false teachers and false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now we have other tapes going into this in considerable depth. Who will seek other recordings, sorry, who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. Parasogzusin. Uh, Even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. When you, someone like, even this week with Sandy and myself, someone who people think is a conservative, who think is discernment, will say there are those who love the word of the Lord more than they love the Lord. They're denying the master who bought them. If you, <laughs> Father, sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. He magnifies his word above his name. He is the word. The word became flesh. When you're denying the divinity of the scripture, I don't mean the, the print and the book itself. I don't mean the, the, the physical text, but what it says. If you deny that what it says is divine, that it's not God, you're denying the master who bought you. This is always a trap. And false teachers and false prophets will always do it. They will say true things. They will use true things and subtly, sub, subtly and secretly introduce falsehood and people will believe it. Well, look at the Markodet, the trap, okay? It's Psalm 91. He'll, he delivers you from the snare of the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. We had a strike this week from YouTube. They don't like us. Fortunately, we have our own server on RTN and we're on multiple servers, oh, I'm sorry, multiple platforms with Moriel TV, multiple, because we don't like or trust YouTube. So therefore we have our own thing. However, they can shut us down on YouTube. Now they can't get us off Rumble or Vimeo or whatever, or RTN, but they can get us off YouTube. There's more and more censorship. Uh, well, they did it to us this week because I said things about the coronavirus that were true, but that they didn't like being said, that they didn't like being said. You've got a pop star, Neil Young can say things about the vaccines that are not true, but he's okay. He's not going to get censored. You know. It's all manipulated and it's all corrupt. Now, please continue to pray. This week, we have seen the beginning. The beginning, I hope, I pray to God, it is only the beginning of God's judgment on mainstream media. I hope. Stelzer, Brian Stelzer, who took CNN from a left center but mainstream news platform and turned it into a propaganda vehicle for the extreme left and lied and lied and lied repeatedly and, 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 and only hired liars it looks like has been caught in a series of sex scandals that involved one of their producers that involved Cuomo the governor's brother now it's Stelzer himself and it may get to um, uh, it, it may get I'm sorry Zucker Zucker himself, and it may get to Stelzer. Uh, thank God, CNN has a 90% drop in viewership. Can you imagine you're only getting 
one-tenth of the people watching you that watched you a year ago? Thank God. It, her head didn't roll far enough, but the ABC in America, they kicked Whoopi Goldberg for her remarks about the Holocaust and not being racist. They kicked her off of that TV, ridiculous TV program, The View. I never would watch it, but I know what it is. I've seen clips of it. They kicked her off for two weeks punitively. They should have kicked her off permanently, but that's just the way it is. They got to keep everybody happy. Um, we're beginning to see God's judgment come on various quarters of the mainstream media. May it so be. Now, I have no doubt that this is happening because of a number of things. Certainly, their hatred of Christians. Certainly, their hatred of pro-life people. Certainly, again, their hatred of Israel and their being partisan to people who are anti-Christian and anti-Israel, and certainly the same-sex agenda, the pro-homosexual lesbian agenda. I believe it's God's judgment. I just hope it continues. Uh, but be that as it may, the pestilence. We got in trouble this week was the pestilence. Notice, the Lord will protect you from the pestilence. In the last days, Jesus said that there will be pestilence. Only he says, deadly pestilence. Deadly pestilence. This doesn't mean Christians cannot be COVID infected. It doesn't mean that. And it certainly doesn't mean that Christians can't die from it. I know some Christians who have, some good Christians who have. But it does mean it's not deadly. When God allows these pestilences to come, and remember, in Matthew 24, they're going to come. When these pestilences come, they kill people for the purpose of bringing them into eternal perdition and judgment. Eternal perdition and judgment. If a saved Christian succumbs to a pestilence, a viral infection of any kind, there's no death. Jesus has, of course, abolished death. There's resurrection. There's a going to sleep, but there's no permanent death. When you look at the way pestilences are used in Scripture, let's begin with the Exodus. The pestilences were designed to bring destruction on Pharaoh and on Pharaoh's kingdom when they were persecuting the children of Israel. That's what they came for. They're still commemorated in the Paschal Seder with the 10 drops of wine into the saucer, which corresponds to the cup of his wrath in the book of Revelation. And you still count them out in the Paschal Haggadah. Dam, blood, Svardaya, frogs, hoshek, darkness, and the cup is filling up. Now we see that this has a future prophetic meaning in the book of Revelation. These same plagues on Egypt make a comeback. Only instead of against Pharaoh and his magicians, it's going to be against the Antichrist and false prophet. But the same thing happens. The same thing is going to happen again. Remember, it's not just past prophecy uh, fulfilled. It is future prophecy fulfilled. These pestilences have a problem. Now, were Israel, was Israel there during the pestilences? Yes, they were there. The frogs and the blood, they, they were there for all of this stuff. They were there. When the boils appeared on the Egyptians, you know, there was obviously some kind of a contagion that was causing the boils on the skin and the torment and things like And that comes back in the book of Revelation. That comes back in the book of Revelation. It, you had the uh, kinim, like the lice, driving the people crazy. Israel went through all of that. The only one they didn't go through was the last one, the death of the firstborn because of the blood of the Paschal Lamb. The Marki Mavid couldn't touch them. Now that teaches about the end of the age. We will be here for these pestilences. 
We will be here for these pestilences, but they will not affect us with eternal destruction the way they did the Egyptians and the way they will those who accept the mark of the beast and so forth in the kingdom of Antichrist. They'll not affect us the same way. Additionally, they point to the fact that there's a rescue coming, a rapture coming, the same as they told Israel there was going to be an exodus coming, a picture of the rapture. When you see this term, this phenomena that's in Exodus mentioned, and it's again in the book of Revelation, we're talking here prophetically. We're talking here prophetically from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings, that under his wings, you may seek refuge. Uh, in Hebrew, it's much, much better. There's even a, a hymn that, that sung about it, a chorus sort of, Adon HaKavod Merakam Lechim. You are the Lord of honor, Lord of glory, King of kings, uh, with healing in thy wings or with remedy in thy wings. The idea of the wings of the Lord are representing divine protection. Now, why does it use the term define where the modern Hebrew word for shoulders comes? Well, it's related to the word for shoulder, for shoulder. The government will be upon his shoulder. Jesus carried the cross, of course. He bore it on his shoulder, okay? The word in Hebrew for wings come, is related to the word for shoulder. But also, you see the pinion. Uh, we think of the eagle in some context it's a bird of attack. It's not a kosher bird. It's a bird of attack. But there is a place in scripture. You look at Isaiah and Ezekiel. It comes in and it's a bird of rescue. It snatches away. It snatches away. Now, the same as it snatches away its prey, drops it to its death and devours it. This snatching. Remember, the rapture is harpezo. It's a snatching away. We have a teaching explaining this, the great church robbery. Everybody gets snatched, gets ripped, ripped off. Everybody gets robbed. Everybody gets snatched away. The question is, by who? By who? The Lord works in the same way as the thief. We are told in the New Testament, the thief the kleptos, we get the word kleptomaniac, the kleptos comes and he hard paints us. He, in other words, the crook rips you off. The robber rips you off, okay? Well, the Lord behaves the same way as any other thief. He comes as a thief in the night and he snatches away. He behaves the same way, only he does it for good and for the benefit of his people and, of course, for his glory. In other words, he beats the devil at the devil's own game. The Lord beats the devil at the devil's own game. I would point you to the recording teaching we have from some years ago, but it's available. The Great Church Robbery. The Great Church Robbery. Some of you may remember it, but it deals with this particular subject more than we can go into it tonight. He'll cover you with the pinions, okay? His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. Remember, he remains faithful when we are unfaithful. It's good that we have faith. It's essential that we remain faithful. But it was, and it is the faithfulness of the Lord. He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Uh, remember the apostles fell asleep in Gethsemane. They were unfaithful, but Jesus still said, take me, let these go. Okay. <laughs> he was faithful. They were not. He was. Could you not have waited with me an hour? No, no. He remains faithful even when we are unfaithful. Yes, it's important we remain faithful, and he can keep us faithful, 
but our real shield, our real protection is in his faithfulness, his faithfulness. You'll not be afraid of terror by night or of the arrow that flies by day. Remember, arrows are like the same as the fiery darts of the enemy, the way they're translated from the Septuagint into the New Testament, the words, the things the devil says, okay? But to shoot an arrow as a, as a weapon, or as a projectile, you have to be able to see what you're shooting at. The arrows come by day, okay? Something else happens at night. There are other modes of attack in the night. Do not be afraid of terror by night. There will be terror by night. Remember, he's coming like a thief in the night. Uh, the bridegroom always comes for the bride in the night. Matthew 25, Song of Solomon, etc. I've said this stuff till I am blue in the face. The night is a metaphor for the close of the age when everything becomes dark spiritually. But it will be terrifying. It'll be a time when things are terrifying. Yet, those who are in the Lord, who take refuge in him, will not be terrified by it. Lift up your head, rejoice, your redemption's drawing in. We know what these things mean. Moses and Aaron were not terrified with the pestilences on Egypt. They knew it meant that the rescue from Egypt was getting near. Well, let's look. Back to pestilence. Of the pestilence that stalks in darkness. The pestilence that stalks in darkness. The darker things become spiritually and morally. The darker they become spiritually and morally. Okay, the more pestilence you're going to see. Pestilence is one of the things that's going to increase the most as a judgment before the return of Christ. We haven't seen anything yet. You know, we haven't seen anything yet with bird flu fever or COVID or any of these. We haven't seen anything yet. Major portions of the world's demography are going to be reduced of the global population will face reduction because of pestilence the darker things get in the future that's going to happen forget about vaccines forget about inoculations these are going to be in verse three deadly pestilence there's not going to be an antidote there's not going to be an inoculation, there's not going to be a cure. You're either in Christ or you're not. Okay. It stalks in the darkness. Or of the destruction that lays waste at noon. Whenever you see that, we know it's talking about the prophecies of the book of Amos. The book of Amos, when it gets dark at noon. That prophecy, of course, was fulfilled in the Gospel of St. Luke, from 12 to 3, when Jesus hung on the cross, it could not have been an eclipse. It could not have been an eclipse for the simple reason it was the 14th of Nisan. It was Passover. Wrong lunar cycle, wrong solar cycle, a wrong phase of the lunar and solar cycles. It could not have been an eclipse, not possibly. God actually made the sun go down he interfered or intervened with it the way he did in Gibeah with, with Joshua and the way he did when it went back with Hezekiah. God made it go down in fulfillment of the prophecies of Amos. Now that prophecy, what happened when Jesus was on the cross, that is true of the first coming, but it is also true of the second coming. Remember, the book of Joel, the day of the Lord will be a day of darkness. He's coming in the dark. It's the dark. Uh, I'd point you to the, well, maybe we should just go look at it very quickly in case we have someone who's not familiar with it. Look with me, please, to the book of Amos. 
chapter 8, verse 9. It'll come about in that day that I will make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark and broad daylight. Then I shall turn your festivals into mourning, etc., etc. Okay. Now notice, it begins talking then about the last days. I'll send a famine on the land. Not a famine for food or water, but a famine for the hearing of the word of the Lord and this kind of thing. It is a prophecy about both the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. This darkness is coming, and it's always darkest before the dawn. When it was dark, before he made perfect atonement for our sin and gave up the ghost, he said, it is finished, it was at the end of that period of three-hour darkness. Let's also just briefly look at the book of Joel, of Yoel Hanabi. Blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my mountain in chapter 2. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of darkness and gloom. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, it became very dark, very suddenly. That's what the scripture talks about. Work while you have the light. Night will come when no man can of course work, when no man can of course work. Uh, and so we continue. These things had a partial fulfillment in his first coming, but they'll have an ultimate fulfillment like many other things in his second. The idea of an increase in pestilences and an increase in darkness. Lays waste at noon. Well, Jesus was laid waste at noon when he took our sin. A thousand may fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it shall not approach you. You will only look on with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Always remember what it says in Job. Always remember what it says in but that what Jeremiah wrote. Why do the wicked prosper? Why do the unsaved prosper? Why do those who are doing things that are morally abominable, those who are persecuting the church, those who hate Israel, those who are pro-abortion, those who are pro-same-sex marriage, those who are given over to all of these wicked things and, and, and more coming? Why do they seem to prosper? Well, Romans 1 tells us, because God has given them over. They don't realize, as they delight in their wickedness and become more aggressive, aggressive in asserting it, that be, it's because God has put them in a situation where they're not going to turn back now, where they're not going to turn back. Ultimately, in the book of Revelation, when these things happen, we are told, and men still did not depart from their wicked deeds. They can't. They've, God gave them over. He's going to give them over to the point they will not be able to repent of their wicked deeds. You see this militant activism of the homosexuals and all this abortion? They'll, they'll allow Islamic prayer rooms in schools, but you can't have Christian assemblies. And they're getting worse and worse and more and more demanding. God gives them over. But then I perceive their end. Now look at the language. Look at the language very carefully. You only look on with your eyes. Yeah, but how can this happen with all this destruction coming? And if we're in it, how are we going to look upon it with our eyes? Turn with me, please, if you will, to the book of Job. The book of Job. Job chapter 19.
We begin in verse 23. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book that with an iron stylus and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. Well, they are. As for me, I know my Redeemer liveth, and at the last day he will take his stand upon the earth. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes shall see, and not another. My heart faints within me. We are not immune from this happening but we are guaranteed a recovery. Those in rebellion against God, those who reject his offer of salvation, they're not immune from it either. But as we are guaranteed a recovery, they are guaranteed no recovery. We're guaranteed a recovery. doesn't say it won't happen, but we're guaranteed a recovery. Even if your flesh is destroyed, even if you die from this stuff, with your own eye, you're going to see God literally. There will be a literal physical resurrection, alive as we are at this moment, if not more so. When we look upon the Lord, the Redeemer who liveth, at the same time, we're going to see the destruction of the wicked. The pestilence is going to come. These things are going to come. We are guaranteed a cure. They are guaranteed there will be no cure. A divine guarantee. The wicked still did not be part of their wicked. There'll be no cure for them. It's, it's eternal destruction. We are guaranteed a cure. Though our flesh is declared, yet with our own eyes shall we see God. And we're going to see what happened to them. The recompense of the wicked. Why did the wicked prosper? But then I perceived their end. For you have made the Lord my refuge, in verse 9 in Psalm 91, even the most high your dwelling place. It goes back to that. Our security is in him. Not a safe room, not a bunker, not a vault, not a fallout shelter. Our safety is in him. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands lest you strike your foot against the throne. Let's stop right there. No evil's going to happen to you, and no plague's going to happen. He'll give his angels charge concerning you to guard your ways. They're going to bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan twists that out of context. And after twisting it out of context, attempts to tempt Jesus with it. If you really believe the word, it's your word. If you really believe your own word, if you believe your father, if you really believe it, jump off. Now look at verse 13. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample down. Let's look, please, to the temptation narrative where this is used about the Messiah. We're looking at it from the point of view, as is our theme for this series, the Messiah in the Psalms. Messiah and prophecy. We can look at it in either Matthew or we can look at it in the Gospel of St. Luke. It transpires immediately after Jesus, immediately after Jesus 
is baptized immediately after Jesus is baptized. Look at Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness. Notice the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led him into a place where he was going to be tempted and tried. Now we pray, lead us not into temptation. But the Lord will allow us to go through these things to make us stronger. Separate subject, but the Spirit led him into it. Is it the devil? Yes. Does God allow it for a purpose? Yes. When we find ourselves in times of temptation, no matter what it is, we need to understand Yes, it is the devil. That is for sure. That's clear. But God is allowing it for a reason. To defeat him. The first and foremost way, the first and foremost way we defeat the devil is crucifying our old nature and not giving in to sin. Next way, leading people out of his kingdom to Christ through second birth. You put on the armor and go to war. This all goes to Ephesians chapter 6, certainly. Ultimately, the enemy will be destroyed with the return of Jesus. He's already been mortally wounded, but he will be destroyed with the return of Christ. In the meantime, there's a lot of battles, a lot of battles, battles involving the church against the world, battles involving our old nature against our new nature. The spirit led him. Oh, that's just the devil. We rebuke it in the name of Jesus. I don't know. You don't rebuke it, you rebuke him. <laughs> the Lord lets us go through this stuff sometimes. The Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, cannot be taken on its own. It has to be taken in the full context of what Jesus said. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which could be understood and translated. Deliver us from the evil one. It's not just lead us on into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Okay. Some people have tried to explain that, although it's not a good linguistic argument, it is in principle true. God tests us, the devil tempts us. God tests us, the devil tempts us. Now, Linguistically, it's, it's not a clear, from the Greek, it's not a clear argument to make that. If you read the epistle of James, people from the English-speaking world have said that. And it is true, but it's not supportable in the way that they express it from the Greek text. Nonetheless, in principle, it is true. God tests us. Satan tempts us. Then we have the same three things that you see in the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the boastful pride of life, as John the Apostle explains it. On the recent teaching, the 12 mountains of Jesus, we explain this. Okay, we explain this. He was tempted in all manner as we are. That doesn't mean every sin that we were tempted to commit he was tempted to commit the same sin. No, he was tempted in the same manner. That perverted organization, that ecumenical fiasco, Promise Keepers, they said Jesus was tempted to have sex with other men. If you are tempted to have a homosexual relationship, so was Jesus. Perverting the text out of context. 
he wasn't tempted to do everything we're tempted to do, but he was tempted in the same manner. The lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. Now, again, as you know, or most of you know, in Mark's version of this, in Mark chapter 1, verse 18, it says that in the wilderness, he was with the wild animals. It was, it, Mark was, and Peter probably dictating to Mark, was showing that Jesus was the second Adam, or the, or the last, he was the last Adam. The first Adam was alone with the animals and all that kind of stuff, he, he and Eve. And he failed. Satan showed it to Eve. It's wise, it's good for food. And then his wife is attractive and pretty, and she's saying, come on, Adam, do you? You know the story. We all do. Okay. That is where not only did Adam and Eve blow it, it's where you and I blew it. Yes, there was a literal Adam, and yes, there was a literal Eve. Jesus spoke of them as actual people. However, they are also figures, figures. In some contest, contexts, Adam is a figure of Christ. Christ was pre-existent, but he was physically created. Prepare thou a body for me. Adam came into being physically without sin. Jesus came into being physically without sin. Everybody else was born with sin. David said, in sin that my mother conceived me. But as Adam was conceived or created from the earth, he had no sin. When Jesus came, he had no sin. There were only two sinless men to begin with. Adam becomes then a picture of Christ, the first Adam and the last Adam. Eve becomes a picture of Israel and the church. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, your seed and her seed. Okay. There's a figurative meaning to Adam and Eve, a symbolic meaning, a typological meaning. But so it goes beyond that. And Adam all have died. Adam and Eve are pictures of us. If God had created me and my wife or you and your wife or whoever, we would have done the same thing as Adam and Eve. They're just pictures of us. We would have done the same thing. We would have fallen the same way they did. We would have went into the Markodet, into the trap. Now we have to understand it was a trap with Adam and Eve. That is why the text of Psalm 91 uses the language of a trap. There's bait, seeing it was good for food, the lust of the eyes. And Satan takes a passage from that very Psalm, talking about the trap, and uses it to tempt Jesus. Jesus doesn't go for the bait. Unlike the first Adam, the last Adam does not go for the bait. It goes on like this. Again, I don't want to talk too much about the temptation. We have other recordings dealing with it. But it says this. Verse 10, it is written, just throw yourself off the, off the pinnacle of the temple. He'll give his angels charge concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they'll lift you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. A text out of context, an isolation from context, is always a pretext. Satan takes the scriptures out of context. And his servants do the same. As Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. The Jehovah's Witnesses do it, the Mormons do it, the Roman Church does it, the rabbis do it in the Talmud. They take the word of God out of context and use it for purposes of manipulation and spiritual seduction. But what they say that's true is the bait in the trap. 
That is how the Malkodet works. You've got a Greek word, scandalon, scandalon. Scandal is, has to do with the Greek word to lure, to lure. You get lured into something. Well, let's look at this now. He applies it to Jesus. As we've said a number of times, Jesus could not just go to the cross and defeat Satan in his death and in his resurrection until he defeated him in the wilderness. He had to reverse what the first Adam did. He had to succeed where the first Adam failed, because that's where we failed. That's where the fallen nature came from. He had to prevail, succeed, win, where the first Adam lost. The first Adam and Eve went for the bait. Jesus didn't. And the bait, putting truth next to error, a perversion of the word of God. Jesus said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Satan was going to come back. But the first time Satan tried to defeat Jesus was in the wilderness. And he utterly failed. God becomes a man in the person of the Messiah. But Jesus doesn't blow it. He doesn't lose. Adam lost. Eve lost. You lost. I lost. We lost. He didn't. Our salvation is in the winner. And he always wins. Look at this. Go back to Psalm 91. Departs from him until the appropriate or to the opportune time. You've got this Psalm. Verse 13, you will tread upon the lion and the cobra. We know Satan goes around like a lion looking who, for whom he can devour. And the serpent, that is the serpent in verse 13. Uh, actually, it says the, the dragon. This relationship between the dragon and the serpent, you know. Satan the seducer, Satan the persecutor. It's in the book of Revelation and so forth. Again, I'd point you to our other teachings concerning the dragon and the serpent. This is saying that the Messiah is going to tread on the lion and the cobra, and he's going to destroy the dragon. And then <laughs> he's going to destroy them. Romans 16, the Lord of glory will trample. Satan under your feet. Be careful of the dominion theology, false teachers. It's the Lord who tramples Satan under our feet. We don't trample him under our own feet and then invite Jesus to come back. Jesus comes back and tramples. We resist. We preach the gospel, but the final defeat depends on the return of the Lord. Look at verse 14. Because he's loved me, therefore, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high because he's known my name. He'll call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I'll rescue him and honor him with a long life. I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. Understand this psalm. This is the psalm that Satan twisted to tempt Jesus. It doesn't work the first time. He comes back at an opportune time and tries it again with the same psalm. He'll call upon me and I will answer. 
The father doesn't answer. Why have you forsaken me? Lama Lama Sabakdani. Abba Abba Lama Sabakdani. Why have you forsaken me? I'll be with him in trouble. Where is he? I'll rescue him. I'm on the cross. Notice when Satan departs from Jesus until the opportune time. After using this psalm the first time against Jesus to attack Jesus, to give Jesus doubt. He uses the same psalm the second time to attack Jesus, to give Jesus doubt. Why have you forsaken me? Same psalm. But then, with a long life, indeed life, lent the days of the Hebrew, I will satisfy him and let him behold my salvation. In the end, God always wins. In the end, he always wins. There's always a gambit. He seems like he loses but then he wins. God bet everything, not on us. He knew he would lose. He bet everything on his son, his faithful and righteous son. His son was a winner. And the first Adam... What the last Adam? If you're in the first Adam, you're a loser. The serpent is not only going to get you, the serpent has got you already. The dragon is going to get you, but the serpent has you already. If you put your faith in Jesus and repented of your sins and asked him to forgive you, and give you a new life and put his spirit in you. Then you're in the last item. You're not going to lose. The devil's not going to win. You're going to win. You're going to win because Jesus won. Now this is an absolutely magnificent messianic and prophetic psalm because of the way it appears in the New Testament, in both Mark 4 and in Luke 4. But we need to understand it. The same doubts that Satan tried to put in Jesus by twisting this psalm in the wilderness are the same words from the same psalm, same thing he tried to put into the mind of Jesus to make him doubt on the cross. Didn't work the first time, and it didn't work the second time. It's not going to work at all. Jesus is going to trample the serpent. He's going to kill the lion. Jesus is going to destroy the dragon. The question every man has every woman has, is do you want to be on the side that wins or the side that loses? You may seem like you're winning now if you don't know Jesus. That's dangerous because the more it seems like you're winning now, the more you're painting yourself into a corner for which there is no escape. That guy, Jeffrey Epstein, thought he was winning. Perfect picture of it. Some of the most powerful people in the world, from the royal family, from the Clinton and all this, and he's got the sex slaves and all this kind of... He thought he had it. More money than most people could dream of. 
all those people a lot wealthier than him, even far wealthier, but he had a lot, a lot of money. And it just kept going on and going on. The more unsafe people go on thinking they're winning, the more they're losing. But the devil will try to persuade us that we are losing because he knows that in Christ, we are winning. Thank you so much for listening. God bless.